Jennifer Fraser is author of The Bullied Brain, Heal Your Scars and Restore Your Health. She has a PhD in comparative literature and The Bullied Brain is her fourth book. She draws on medical, neuroscientific, and neurobiological research to examine what happens to brains that are bullied and abused. Jennifer is an award-winning educator and works as a coach, consultant, and international presenter. This podcast is a dialogue that works in the first season like a coaching session. Eric shares his childhood experiences of being abused, and Jennifer discusses the implications for brain and for recovery. Our goal is to use Eric's childhood abuse like a case study as most people don't learn about their brains or about how abuse impacts their brains. The research is clear that the brain is innately wired to repair and recover when we know the harm done and the evidence-based practices to heal. This is the focus of Jennifer's book, but it comes to life in a podcast as Eric bravely walks us through the abuse done to him and his many strategies for healing his neurological scars. For all those who have suffered bullying, abuse, and trauma, join us to look at it through the lens of brain science and learn ways to repair the harm done. Hi Jennifer, how are you? I'm good. I'm really good, Eric. How are you? I'm good. A little taken aback. You uh, came into this hot and heavy and jumped right in to hit record. So do you have something you want to start with right away? I do. I wanted to say that I thought it was a very useful exercise, us trying to say, what is what are we doing? What is this podcast? Why, why are we doing it? What does it matter? What is it about? And I found that process really enlightening for me because I was in a real rush yesterday when I was answering, but it forced me in the you know limited time that I have to say to myself, what are we doing? Why does it, why does it matter? And I realized something powerful. And that is, I don't think there are people who want to recover from abuse, who want to be intentional and psychologically knowledgeable about who they are and why they do the things they do, why they have the feelings that they have, why their relationships are what they are. Those people right now in our society, they don't consult with neuroscientists as as a kind of therapeutic model. They go to a psychiatrist, they go to a psychologist, but they don't, or a mental health professional, some form, some kind of a counselor, but they don't, I don't think, actually talk about the brain. Like what is going, you know, imagine if you went to see a psychologist. I mean, I've done tons of therapy myself. I saw a psychologist and then I saw, when I was at grad school, I saw two psychiatrists twice a week. And then after that, I saw a psychologist again. And never once, I swear the word, the brain was never spoken. And so it's just a different model. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that you know, psychology is one type of an approach that's very well established. We've all seen psychologists on TV. I mean, even Tony Soprano has a psychologist. But have you ever seen a TV show where the person goes and talks to a brain scientist about what they're experiencing in terms of relationships or how they act? And, and it becomes kind of a, a conversation or a dialogue that constantly looks at the situation from a brain point of view. Because I think that's what we're doing. And that's why I think both of us hope, neither of us being brain scientists, but wanting that knowledge, wanting to know from the brain point of view, this might be what's going on. And we have to factor the brain in. Like we're having to learn it ourselves, you and me, because it's just not a part of our society. And it's not its not really readily available. Like, I mean, as you know, from my, my book, The Bullied Brain, 
I had to go and find all the information myself. I had to go and read the research and so, then put it together. Right. And with that in mind, Jennifer, let's go back to what you started this episode with by saying people, what I heard you say was people don't want to. And it's not that they don't want to, it's there's no brain scientists that are available. There's nobody hanging a shingle and saying, I'm a brain scientist here to heal your brain. What they are is they're a bunch of eggheads in colleges writing papers that aren't getting outside the scientific community unless another nerd like you comes out and finds them. Yeah, it's it's very, very true. It's because, I mean, the neuroscientists, they have such incredibly important work to do that only a very rarefied group of people, like I think of Dr. Michael Merznick, you know, his brain is designed to do this brilliant research. And he actually, like lots of other neuroscientists that have written books, for example, they do work hard to get that knowledge out there. It's just that we have such an appetite for it. It can make such positive changes in our society and it's not getting out quickly enough, you know, and, and their specialized knowledge, like I, I am the sort of person that should be doing this because I'm an educator. So I'm just taking the knowledge and I'm teaching it. I'm like, hey, just in the same way that when I was teaching literary studies at University of Toronto, I was reading James Joyce and I was reading Dante's Divine Comedy. And then I was teaching young people about it, like what I had learned and why I thought it was valuable. So how, but you, you know, part of this is going to be a self-selection by, by people that will read the books, which is, you know, it's, it's onerous, especially if you have a learning disability. It can be very challenging to read books. And if you're, if you're, if you're working through trauma, even if you don't have a diagnosis, even when you're working through trauma, it's, it's so challenging to get through the day, much less think about that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. All you have to do is go find a tool. So it's really got to be a partnership, I would think, between therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists and the neuroscientists. But that's going to change the whole paradigm of the of the mental health world. Or maybe what we do is we we start having neuroscientists training AIs and let an AI work with people. Doesn't work. You know why? One of the most fascinating things about the brain is it doesn't learn from computers or artificial intelligence. It learns only from other human beings. And they learned this when they were all excited about, oh, we're going to teach little ones. We're going to teach toddlers how to speak different languages. We'll just put them in front of a computer program and they will learn how to speak all these different languages. Didn't work. Kids can't learn languages unless they're learning from a human being. So I think that like, I was thinking about how you're creating a new career path essentially for yourself. You've already had a number of careers and you're creating a new one and that's disability planning, which is absolutely brilliant. I think much, much needed career in the world but what I think is really interesting is with this podcast, you're adding another element to the concept of disability, because I think you and I would agree that if you have what I refer to as a broken brain, which is just me struggling for the correct language, someone like Michael Merznick would say that the brain has a distortion. So abuse distorts the brain. So it causes you, in a sense, to have a disability. Because let's say you are you become very reactive and aggressive. So like, like a dog that's being beaten repeatedly, you start to interpret things as threats that aren't, that somebody who hadn't suffered that wouldn't see it as a threat, a quick movement or a raised voice or too close proximity 
I haven't, I wasn't beaten repeatedly as a child. So I don't have a big reaction to that. You, on the other hand, with repeated physical beatings might have a very reactive, aggressive response. That's not great in the workplace, right? That can get you thrown in jail. That could lead to harming another person. That gets really heavy duty societal, um, you know, like the law comes down hard on you. Well, you have a disabled brain from abuse. And it's a whole new way of thinking because we ignore the brain and the law doesn't really, it's, it's starting to, and there's brilliant people working on it, lawyers and neuroscientists, but you know, we're very lagging far behind in understanding that our brain, just because we can't see it, doesn't mean it hasn't been disabled by things like abuse. And then the exciting flip side, as you know, from the book is we have all these tools, all this research about how to repair the broken brain. How to how to change the disability in the brain into a fabulous ability? I, I yes, all of that. I guess where I find the challenges from the from a consumer point of view, you have like the work that Michael Mersnick is, and I probably mispronounced his name, but you know you have the work he's doing with writing books. But you have your book, and then you have the DSM, which was not originally designed, and still I would argue isn't designed to be a diagnostic tool, regardless of what it says in the name. It's designed to be good for codes for insurance companies. But mental health professionals have been trained to use it when they're working with people. So how are they, you know, it, it's the idea of healthcare is treat, 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 not cure, right? Mental health is no different than anything else. You know, diabetes, very often it's control and maintain your diabetes instead of let's figure out how you can get, you know, change the, you know, change the body chemistry. What can you, before you go full-blown insulin dependent, let's get you, let's not just automatically assume you can't control this with your diet and behaviors. Let's work with you on how to modify your behavior, but that's not, that's not how we do things. So this is a long-winded way of saying to do what, what I hear you suggesting to do for mental health and say, you, you have a distortion in your brain. Let's, let's teach you to, you know, carve out new pathways. Well, that's work, Jennifer. That's not, a, you know, that's, give me some medication that'll just fix this, and make it go away. No, I know. It's, it's like everybody's looking for the pill to take for dementia and Alzheimer's. Well, if you talk to Michael Merzenich, he'll tell you there is there's no pill that you can take for the brain. The brain doesn't respond to a pill that's moving into dementia, but it is a gazillion dollar industry. And they're always discovering a new pill and billions of dollars happen, you know, change hands on the stock market. And then they suddenly find that, well, it doesn't work quite as well as they expected. Dr. Michael Merzenich would say there's work to be done on your brain if you are getting older, the sooner you start doing the brain training, which is really, it's hard work, but it's just half an hour a day. It's like physical exercise is hard work, but it's just half an hour a day or an hour. You put in your time in the brain gym doing brain fitness designed by neuroscientists who know what they're doing. You can really reduce your chances of dementia in old age. It's the same kind of idea. It's like, you know, my my older son, he was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, which was really serious because he's in the film industry and he's a camera operator. So he works out in the elements all over the place. They work in the desert. They work in the mountains. They're filming at nighttime. And he was finding that the arthritis was affecting his hands, his fingers. And you have to hold incredibly expensive equipment that's also heavy, some of it, very, very heavy. 
So this was a disaster. I mean, he's in his 20s. It's like, oh my God, if he's got juvenile rheumatoid arthritis starting to attack his hands, it's gonna destroy his career. So he was put on a drug that they use for cancer patients, metha, methotrexate. I was on it for a while. Yeah, well, I read it, all the stuff that's in it. And I was like, this is poison. And the second you come home, our, our son lives in a different city. I said, the second you come home, you're going off that drug and we're going to a naturopath. Take, you, you're gonna go to a naturopath. So we did, he, he went off the drug, went and saw a naturopath that comes highly recommended here for being able to address things like arthritis. He spent about an hour with him going through all these different check marks and tests and this and that and talking to him. And he said, you know what? You have the type of body, not everybody, but you've got the type of body that cannot have wheat you cannot have sugar, not even in fruit, like zero sugar, no wheat, no sugar, no dairy. He goes, that's going to make the difference. He goes, by the time you're 40, you're going to have diabetes. So our son, Montgomery, who's a very super disciplined person, cut everything, no dairy, no wheat, no sugar. Within two or three weeks, he said, God, I, I can feel the blood back in my hands. Six weeks, I don't have swelling in my fingers anymore. I'd like eight weeks. There's no pain. It was like unbelievable. So then he went out on like New Year's Eve or something and got drunk with his friends. So he had a bunch of sugar in the alcohol. Then the next morning he was super hungover. So he had a Coke, tons of sugar, and he had a regular pizza, the wheat and the dairy. And he said within eight hours, his hand was swollen and sore, the joints. And that was the final convincing thing for him. He was just like, yeah, got it. And, and he sometimes will stray off this very strict diet and won't get a reaction because he does it religiously. But I mean, that just proves your point. It's like an entirely different way of thinking about our health and especially our brain health. I mean, how many times do people even use that phrase? We talk about mental health all the time. Who talks about brain health? You know, it's crazy. No, I, I agree. And then, you know, we've been talking these last six, five, six episodes about what I've done to get to where I am. And it, it it's not just assuming it's going to get better on its own. And there's no pill, you know, I've, I've never been on anxiety or depression. Well, and I've never, I've never felt anxiety or depression. So I've never sought those drugs out. I, I will put a caveat on there for, for people that are screaming at their phones or, what, or whatever they're listening now saying, but some people do need meds. And I do, I personally think some people need meds. I'm on I'm on what's called a biologic for my psoriasis because I it was I got it really bad. It was a, attacking my joints, and you know I'm I'm clear right now. The flip side of that is, you know, I have a family history of blood pressure and diabetes, and I've been able to control that with diet. You know, yeah, no, I completely agree with you that that to say no to medicine is like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Like that doesn't make any sense. Same thing with psychology and psychiatry. What someone like. Dr. Michael Mersnick would say as a neuroscientist is what we wanna do is work ourselves to get our brains as fit as humanly possible so we can do the specialized work we need to do with a psychologist and the specialized work we need to do with a psychiatrist. But just because I have a medical doctor and believe me when it comes to Western medicine, you know, I do all the alternative stuff. I try to do you know, mindfulness, I do yoga, I see a naturopath, I see a chiropractor. But when I needed knee surgery, I wanted a Western knee surgeon, absolutely. And I just loved taking all the painkillers they gave me through <laughs> through intravenous in the hospital. Like I was the happiest Western drug taking patient on the planet. And 
but they're they don't they don't cancel each other out is my point just to reiterate what you're saying just because i have a doctor doesn't mean that i don't exercise right like i want to get fit i want to have physical fitness so i can be my best self when i go to the doctor and he or she can help me when i really need their specialization same thing with mental health i need to work hard to keep my brain as healthy as possible but gosh, I would go right and see a psychologist or mental health professional or a psychiatrist if I needed it. And certainly if I needed the medication that they can prescribe. Yeah. And I wouldn't say no to it. Like, that's crazy. There can be chemical imbalances in the brain. There can be all kinds of complicated things. So I'm really, really glad you clarified that key point. Yeah, I mean, think, and, and for those of you out there listening, think, of, and I don't know if doctors are saying as much as they should, but as you age, you lose muscle mass, which is why you get you know, and you you start having trouble with balance, and this is why you become more of a fall risk when you get in your sixties, seventies, and older. But you don't have to. It's not a foregone conclusion that that's going to happen. If you can start a regimen of of exercise, cardio and anabolic, you know the or weight training, then you can you can build the muscle mass. It's not going to build like it did in your twenties, you know, just like trying to you could do all the cardio in the world and i'm not going to burn you know calories like it like i used to be able to eat two large pizzas and a case of mountain dew and not put on a pound i look at a mountain dew now and i'm gaining five pounds right i don't drink soda or eat pizza that you know but i don't drink any soda and i very rarely eat pizza so maybe i should refer to beer and alcohol but the point being you've got to work on it and and the you know like the brain thing like you were saying i'm i'm new to mindfulness I've tried and I continue to try to do meditation and I do it because I can see a no kidding drop five to 10 points in my blood pressure because I'll take my blood pressure before I meditate. And then, and I don't do 30 minutes. I do a 10 minute guided meditation on using the call map and my blood pressure still drops. Now you could say, well, it would drop without the meditation. And I'll tell you, I have a real hard time sitting still for 10 minutes to, to get a comparison. So maybe, but I know me, you're not going to get me to sit still and, and calm down long enough. But if I do the meditation, I'm in a better place. And short, usually it's, it rolls me right into bed and I tend to sleep better. I actually get more than five, five and a half hours of sleep. I'll get six, six and a half or seven. So, you know, anecdotally, I'm seeing things that where the meditation is how, and again, I'm not doing a half hour or, you know, whatever, but. You know, it's the research into mindfulness from the brain point of view is just confirms everything that you've said there. But a really important point, I'm not sure if anyone said this to you or we've talked about it. You have to be very, very careful doing meditation and mindfulness if you're an abuse victim. If you've suffered trauma, it can actually be a very negative experience for you to sit still, first of all, and then to kind of close your eyes and go into a, a restive state like that, because that's a very vulnerable place to be if you have a history of abuse. So one of the things that I do, having a history of abuse, I don't sit still. When I meditate, I walk. And so what I'm communicating to my brain when I'm walking is I do all the deep breathing and I do the purposeful stay in the moment, but I'm also telling my brain that I'm in charge and that I'm safe and that I'm I'm not inactive or kind of trapped in any way. And that that double message works for me. Everybody has their technique. Another thing that I know that people do who have trauma backgrounds is they'll do things like color. So they'll color in an abstract drawing, like a geometric drawing. You could just make it up yourself, but you very, you do the deep breathing 
you do a, a very purposeful coloring in where it's about being in the moment and just choosing the colors and fully engaging in that one activity. You don't allow your mind to wander as best you can. You try to don't think about the past, don't think about the future, just in the moment. And yeah, it has this incredible, it's the parasympathetic nervous system that you're activating. And that's, you know, the neuroscientists call it rest and digest. It lowers your heart rate. It does. It's not anecdotal. It lowers your blood pressure. It, it brings the blood back into the digestive system. You know how when kids are super stressed out, they oftentimes have gastrointestinal reactions, stomachache. They'll say, I don't want to go to school. I have a stomachache. That's a natural bodily reaction to the sympathetic stress system being activated. And we can activate that system just anticipating an abusive situation. Just thinking about it is enough for our bodies to start pumping adrenaline, cortisol, the whole shebang and the sympathetic stress response which is really like if it gets activated over and over is immensely hard on the brain and the body. It, it hurts both. Yeah. I've heard you can get adrenal burnout, I think is what it's called or whatever, where you just, you know, you're constantly elevated and then, you know, the cortisol and stuff or cortisone when you're, when you're under stress all the time. And it, it doesn't have to necessarily, you know, and I get it. It's not just from trauma. It can also be caregivers experience the similar thing right because they're they're under constant state of stress no it, it's it's i it goes back to how are you going to get this conversation started in the mental health arena right you know how are you going to get this into rehabilitation rehab facilities for drug and alcohol because oftentimes that's driven by a trauma not always but oftentimes there's a trauma that leads into abuse because you're trying to escape something or any kind of addictive behavior you know insert vice here right oftentimes it's a it's the combination of trauma and having an addictive personality i used to dip and i was able to quit cold turkey because i just didn't want to do it anymore so i you know i have the benefit of not having that addictive personality where it's harder for me to give things up or you know get into routine and stay in routine so i i don't know what the right answer is you know to get therapists and mental health professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists to see this as anything other than, oh, that's hokey, you know, because I feel like that's going to probably be their first reaction is that's, you know, hokey or what have you. And, and I'm not a mental health professional. I, I could be way off base. There could be somebody out there who's a LCSW or, or a psychiatrist going, Eric, what is wrong with you? And, and I hope I, I hope that's what they're doing. I hope I don't believe this is the case, but I, I hope that the mental health professionals out there are looking at the brain science. I just don't think they are. Well, I mean, it's always one of those, you know, how, how many hours do you have in a day? It's one of those, I think, for sure. A friend of mine is a psychologist in California, and uh, she loves, like, when we talk about the brain science, she did, hadn't really looked into it herself before, even though she's a PhD in psychology. She's absolutely brilliant, this woman, and does great work with her clients, I'm sure, but it's really been me that's sort of been talking up the brain and how fascinating it is. And then another woman I know, she's a licensed mental health professional in Florida. And she, Tiffany Werner, she runs a, a radio show called Moments of Clarity. And it's all about psychology and mental health. And she interviews me all the time and loves to hear about the brain. But, you know, she's a mom. She runs this radio show. She's got all these clients. She, I think that she just doesn't do it, you know, doesn't have time to do a deep dive into the brain. I mean, I ended up doing it because, I mean, a whole series of different factors, but, you know, I was lucky that I had 
time to be able to actually do a deep dive into the research. And the reason I was driven to do it was because I was a mother worried about my child, you know, and, and people who have some, you know, my son has a disability. He has a learning disability and nothing major. He's an auditory processor. So he needs extra time and he needs a laptop. It was, he was diagnosed in grade six. He needs to hear the book or the information on tape. And he also needs like quiet conditions. He's very, very distractible. So, you know, in grade six, we started addressing all these issues and getting all these accommodations and so on and so forth. But he's also, which, you know, how with disability, almost always there's a, a gift that comes with it. His gift is to be this, he's just a brilliant athlete. When he started being targeted by coaches, like highly abusive coaches, and I was being told that it wasn't hurting him, it wasn't a big deal, sort of like, what's your problem? How come you're not just normalizing the abuse like everybody else? That's when I turned to the science. And it was, it was a godsend for me. I mean, I found out that actually what was being done to my son and the other students was extremely destructive. And I wouldn't have known it if I hadn't spit the bullet and read the research myself. And I, and I can appreciate that, Jennifer. And, and my intent is not to say that psychologists and psychiatrists and therapists have to immerse themselves in research. I liken it where, where my brain goes. For the audience, we don't plan these conversations out ahead of time. So you're going to hear hesitations while, we, while both of us try to factor our thoughts together. Where, where I liken it to is I'm going to use what I have experience with. So when I was a financial advisor, right, I, I had a, a, a fair to midland understanding of, of the different aspects of financial planning, retirement, estate planning, you know, college planning, et cetera, et cetera. But there, you know, there's six or eight different components where I didn't think you could be an expert in all of them. And I still don't because there's just too much to learn. Right. So you pick one thing to get very good at, or you stay a generalist either way is fine, but you bring in people that are experts in everything that you're not. So I never got super good at any of the financial planning things because it didn't light my fire. So when I when I had families that wanted to do college planning, I would find a partner who just nerded out in college planning. And that's where I, that's where I think you know a therapist can you know can say, "Hey, I'm working with this you know really again use me as an example, the you know because you've you've said and other people my my therapist my my a business coach have all said I've I've had extremely high levels of abuse and trauma. I I whatever. Well not whatever, but it, it I have nothing to compare it to, right? And I, you know, so they could, you know, say if this is a level of trauma they're not used to seeing, or they're like, we don't know how necessarily to what to what to you what would work with this person. Can you give me some tips? What does the science say? And reach out and tap into the professional. You know, it, it's it's to do a little bit of, of you know, self-promotion here. It's the same thing I'm trying to do now with the disability planning is when you have professionals who say they are doing, in air quotes, special needs planning, but they're really just doing financial planning for somebody with a disability or estate planning for somebody with a disability. And they're not talking about things like Medicaid waivers or, or those other things because they just don't know. Well, they're not really the expert, right? And yeah, you could you could ask them to your point, there's so many hours in a day, how are they gonna get that good at, at that one extra layer? Or they could outsource it, right? You know, topiary. If you want a bush that looks like a bear, 
you could try and spend hours on YouTube and, and, you know, however long it takes to do that. And maybe someday you get something that doesn't look like Edward Scissor's hands had an epileptic seizure while he was cutting your shrub. My apologies to anybody out there who took offense to that. But, you know, or you could hire somebody who made that their life's work. Yeah. But, so, you know, back to your point that you made before, though, there aren't neuroscientists that you can hire to, to consult. I mean, they consult sometimes on legal matters as a subject expert, but it's not yet something in our society where, you know, I think, I think in the future, there will be careers where people train, I, I call them brain trainers. So, you know, back in the day in the eighties, we started to see personal trainers and you would go and this person would take the holistic look at you. What's your diet? What's your emotional state? How, what's your mental health? You know, what's a, a fitness plan that we can put together for you and I'll be with you. I'm going to work with you. I'm going to coach you through it. I'm going to motivate you. And I'm going to use my expertise with the different machines and the exercises and all the stuff I know about kinesiology and stretching. And we're going to get you stronger and better and healthier. I think in the future, it's a dream of mine that there will be brain trainers. So let's say the psychologist hits a certain point where they think to themselves, Hmm, you know, this is really a bit of a neuroscience question. Let me contact so-and-so. I think you should have a few sessions where you talk about brain health and brain fitness. And then after you've done some of that work with so-and-so who I know, then come on back and we'll keep unpacking some of the trauma, you know, that, that should be what the future looks like. And I. So I, make it happen, Jennifer. I mean, you I'm working do, on it. I'm that, working that sounds on like what kind of what you do when you're coaching people, right? Like Dr. Mm -hmm. Mersnick is that, is, is too high up, right? He's He yeah. needs to do what he's doing, but yeah. you you can distill it and, and then get it out to other people, right? Like you, I've seen that in the divorce space where, you know, an attorney is working with, you know, and then a therapist will be working with somebody and they'll say, oh, well, you really need to work with a divorce coach who's not a therapist, but can, can coach you through certain things. And there's a smooth handoff. Yes, all of this costs money, but I would argue you're investing in yourself. And if you can improve yourself, even one to or two percent, and you've got a 30, 40 year lifespan ahead of you, you're going to it's going to pay dividends, can make huge dividends. Yeah, no, totally. I, I it is something that I'm thinking a lot about for people who are interested in the idea, especially business people. I just finished a course that I took with one of the gentlemen is British, so he's in England and the other is Turkish and he's in Turkey. It was an absolutely fantastic course. It's called, if you just, if you look up BTFA. Bravo, Tango, Foxtrot, Alpha. Yeah. And maybe just link it to, like if you went on LinkedIn and you looked at David Bovis, B-O-V-I-S, David Bovis or Levent, L-E-V-E-N-T, Turk. They put this together and they're both engineers and it's really about positive change culture in the corporate space. But they, they teach the neuroscience in a really practical, it's all done with animated videos. They create story. It's not just an onslaught of information. You meet with them once a week and have a discussion about each of the things. And it's just, I highly recommend this course. You know, even an organization, you could get your employees to do it, but it's really, it's looking at why change is so difficult in the workspace. 
and you can apply it to your personal life as well. So David had read my book, The Bullied Brain. And so he said, I want you to see what we're doing in, in the workspace using neuroscience. So he just let me do the class for free, but I loved it. I, I, it really reinforced a bunch of things that I know about, but it's the way they put it together that was so brilliant. It's so simple. Anyone can apply it to their daily life or you can apply it to your organization. So what it stands for is believe your beliefs. That's the B, your thoughts, all your, the different thinking that you do. The F is feelings. What are your feelings? What's your emotional state? What emotional state do you create in someone else when you behave in a certain way? And then A is action. So it's thoughts, beliefs, feelings, and actions. And they use this model, BTFA, to show you how to, how to create the change that you want in your life or in your organization using neuroscience. It, it, sounds, it sounds really similar to what a woman I just had on my ABC on the ABC's disability planning podcast in May, the, the first week of May of, of 2023, she has a company called social optics where she's working with grade school and high school students about how, about very similar what you're talking about here. And it, it, it's, it's fascinating, you know, but again, it's new. So we're, we're going to, we have to overcome the whole it's pseudoscience it's not, it's real science, but you know, there's going to be this whole, it's pseudoscience. There's going to be a lot of naysayers, I think, who are, who are worried that it's another type of snake oil that's being peddled, all with good reason. There have been a lot of, a lot of people preying on, you know, those individuals, you know, those of us who have mental health challenges or brain health challenges or whatever, they, they tend to be preyed on, right? Seniors especially. So I, I think it's really cool. And I'll, I'll make sure I include links in the show notes. And But is it going to be affordable for the average person? Well, that's just it. I don't, because I didn't pay for the course, I don't know how much it is. But my guess is it's not, I mean, they just really want to make positive change. They both work full time as engineers. They have like incredibly busy career lives. It's just they created this course because what they see in the workplace as leaders is pretty demoralizing. Just how much companies are flailing and not, not succeeding. And people are really, it was people's disengagement in the workplace. The statistics are pretty shocking. And they were looking at why are we making people so unmotivated? Why are they so disengaged? And you know, really what they came to is we spend way too much time in the work world focused on process and technology and not nearly enough time focused on people and people's brains and what people's brains need. And that's part of the whole push for this neurodivergent workforce and, and making accommodations. But it's really, I think, more of a DEI issue, right? The, you know, the diversity, equity, inclusion, because specifically the equity piece, you know, not everybody is, is going to flourish in the same environment. So, you know, fair isn't always equal, right? I mean, so you, you just have to figure out how you can provide a, a healthy work environment. And I think some of that is going to be replacing management. I think, let me put a caveat, replacing management who doesn't want to try to improve, who doesn't see that there's a problem with the way they are. Because in my personal experience, in my own, you know, what I did myself is, you, you live through something and then you, you don't like it while you're doing it, but you turn around and do it to somebody else because it was done to you. 
the worst logic ever, but it happens. And then you get the same thing in these work, you know, these environments, right? The, these, you know, these these horrible, crappy, misogynistic environments. You know, from a brain point of view, it wouldn't be that you wouldn't logically be making that decision. What's happened is, and you've, you've expressed this a number of times about your childhood, it's all you knew. So in your formative years, you were wired to believe that caretakers were highly abusive individuals. And that, that was normal for you. So that you're even surprised today to hear from you know, your mental health professional that actually this was unusually severe. So all of us get wired. So if you're a misogynistic, unkind... I kind of wanted to say a name, but... Don't say a name. <laughs> um, if you are that person, you, you cast your mind back with the knowledge that you have. You can imagine how that person's brain was wired in their formative years. And I'm not saying it's an excuse. Believe me, I have no patience for it. I believe that just like if that person was a drug addict and hurting other people, they need to go and get rehabilitation. The bottom line is, though, all of us, no matter how severe our wiring, how destructive, how much we end up passing it on to the next generation, including our own families. I mean, your parents, they would have come from pretty harsh background to have behaved the way they did. They didn't. It's not natural to behave that way. Our brains are wired for empathy. So whatever happened to them was grim and they just repeated the process. You chose a different path. You don't want to repeat the process. So you have to get you have to put in the hard work now to unwire what was wired in and you've been doing it for years so i mean it's just a choice that we all make we can repeat the abusive things that have happened to us in life or we can work really hard to unlearn those patterns and replace them with healthier ones yeah and, and i feel like the trap is it's so much easier to say it's not my fault and wash your hands with it or there's nothing wrong with me it's everybody else and that was me and my probably 20s it was it was everybody else there's nothing wrong with me and, you know until eventually i'm like well this keeps happening and the only constant is me so dot 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 maybe i need to look at this but it's you know nobody wants to look in a mirror and, and see you know see the worst side of themselves right i mean no it's horrible it's really horrible and i mean what becomes pretty tragic is when you hit people who are suffering from like narcissism where when they look in the mirror there's still no accountability they they still think that it's a witch hunt they still think that everyone that registers a complaint about them is out to get them because they're always the victim they're like a split personality you know that the way i describe them or when i'm writing about them or working on them for like you know for psychology today or whatever in my book I use the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, because that's the best way for people to instantly get a handle on it. So for anyone who doesn't know that reference, it's to a literary work from the 19th century, a Scottish writer. Dr. Jekyll is the respectable, good doctor, the leader in the community. And he has an alternate ego who's a murderous, destructive person that he, he that is Mr. Hyde. And you can see the play on words. That's the hidden part of himself. It's spelled H-Y-D-E, but it, of course it's a an echo of, I need to hide this part of myself. So, I don't know I was that till just now. Well, my, my training is in literature. So I, I literally hear things that way. I pick up on all that kind of odd, oddball stuff, nerdy as you would call it. So yeah, I mean, that's the narcissist, right? 
they they always think that they are only Dr. Jekyll, but they contain this really destructive force that's Mr. Hyde. And circling back to the, you know, when how you led this, how we started this episode about people not wanting help, it's very likely a narcissist is not going to want to help, want to get any help because they're not going to see anything wrong. So yeah, there in- could be a very good... Now, there's a difference between being a clinical diagnosed narcissist and having narcissistic tendencies, you know, because I feel like narcissism, I feel like that term gets thrown around way too much. I mean, it's a pretty heavy duty term, but I feel like it gets overused. You know, there could be somebody who has narcissistic tendencies and wants to get help. And that's where they're going to have to learn new patterns. I mean, a narcissist would too, but they're not going to seek the help in most cases. But they're going to, how do you learn those patterns? By working with somebody. And maybe... Maybe a sports psychologist could help with that. I don't know the different flavors of psychology, but, you know, because I, I say that because I listen to a podcast with Michael Gervais, who's a sports psychologist for football teams and stuff. And it sounds like he could, he probably works with people on that and mindset and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I don't know if that's all sports psychologists, but it's going to take somebody who understands the brain science to really help and, and, and make it more efficient than what I did, right? I've been kind of floundering. Oh, that, you know, I'm that, for those of you that remember, you know, arcade games where, where you, what's it called? Where you pull the the ball back and you you, you bang Pinball. it around. Yeah. So, you know, I feel like that ball being bounced against all these bumpers, like, mm-hmm. oh, that didn't work. Let me try something else. And instead of having somebody on a guided journey say, hey, look, Eric, and my therapist isn't really doing that either. I mean, you know, I'm, because I don't really need them. I haven't asked them to. And I, and I, you know, it's more of, that's not what we're doing together. Had I had somebody in my earlier, when in, in my late thirties, when I was, you know, nine, 10 years ago, and I was like, man, I'm tired of this crap. And I mean, it was even before that and it, because in the Navy, I would keep remaking myself, but it was so inefficient and it was so half, half assed but that's not really the right work. So I was putting all my effort into it. It just wasn't in the right direction. Does that make sense? Oh Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's probably an apt description of many of us in our lives. It's it's a it's such a I, just as soon as I want to say the words, I imagine how irritating it is to everyone. I wanted to say it's such a journey, but that's just so irritating that I caught myself. But it is. It's like I think I I like that analogy of the pinball. I certainly feel that way myself. I've been kind of thrown from thing to thing to thing, but I there's just different people like to use the narcissist as an example, it's it's really just such a heartbreaking curse in the sense that you're in denial. You can't see your own accountability. I mean, from the brain science point of view, they oftentimes these people come from a background of abuse. And they've they've literally like, you know, it's like borderline personality disorder, but it's even bigger. I just wrote about this actually. Dr. Martin Tyker works on brains. He looks at brains that have been abused. And he looks at the brains of people who are abusive and he calls it associative personality disorder. And that's what Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are. You don't even know what the other person within you is doing. And this is why you can so vehemently say, I never did that. How dare they say that about me? It's so untrue. You know, and we can all think of an example of this on the political stage who, who speaks who has given the whole world the most blatant form of narcissism, you know, it's, and it's, they live that way. They, they just live that way. It's really quite fascinating to watch from my point of view, but associative personality disorder is really what 
what you're witnessing. It's a lot to think about. So, so going forward, what we would ask you to do, at least from my point of view, is I would I would like you to to think about how you can start implementing some of the science. Where can you go to find the science in manageable bite-sized chunks? I mean, I, I would argue that Jennifer's book, The Bullied Brain, is a good starting point, shameless plug. But I, I've read it and I enjoyed it. And you know, if I hadn't read the book, she and I wouldn't be having this podcast. And if you if you are a therapist or a coach or you know, somebody else that's working with people, maybe there's a way that you can if you're so moved, start doing a deep dive into this and thinking about how can you work with people and, and establish yourself in a niche that it's only a matter of time before somebody creates. You know, there's a, there's a lot of need out there. At some point, medications are, I would argue they're already not enough, but they're not going to be enough. They're, there's a need for them, but they're, they, they shouldn't be the end all be all. Well, and also the mental health professional world is absolutely overrun. They don't have enough capacity. They need people to start sort of taking charge of their own brain health and, and starting to get better or getting at least ready to do the therapy because they just are run off their feet. They've got waiting lists you know, around the block, hundreds of people that can't get in and need help. And especially our young people. My big push is I wanna get this material into curriculum. I want I want kids to be trained that being a, a brain coach is a possible career path. They could go into corporations. You know, so I was talking to the BTFA teachers, David and Levent, and saying to them, look, you know, I'll design a program where BTFA is one of the certifications that, you know, someone who wants to become a brain coach, maybe they need to read the bullied brain and then they get certification and they need to, you know, do the BTFA program. That's another one. They could take Neuroscience Academy, like I did with the New Zealand. And, you know, I would just love to create actually a whole reading list. You know, I'd, I'd start everybody off on Soft Wired by Dr. Michael Merzenich, which is, you know, he's one of the greatest neuroscientists of all time. And this is a very readable book. And it teaches you about neuroplasticity. And once you've learned that you have neuroplasticity, you can change your brain by what you practice. Your brain gets changed by the environments that it, it's in. So you've got to make sure you're in a healthy environment, not a toxic one for your brain. Like there's no looking back after that. You know, would, I would just love to teach it like a year long course to high school students. But yeah, that's my, my big plan is get it into the schools, start early, start with brain health in kindergarten and then get let it get more sophisticated as we go through. And I have a bunch of irons in the fire, you know, hopeful starts to this and if i get any breakthroughs i will tell you all about it awesome well thanks for listening everybody till next week thank you for listening to the bullied brain as a reminder neither jennifer nor i are licensed clinical physicians psychologists or mental health professionals everything we are talking about during this podcast is anecdotal as it relates to me, Eric Jorgensen. If you are looking for help or you would like to seek answers to your own questions, we encourage you to seek out a mental health professional in your area. Please do not try to do or overcome any trauma on your own. Thanks for listening.